Welcome to the Nature of Mind podcast. Our mind is our most valuable asset and most dangerous possession. It can be amazingly creative or terrifyingly destructive. The Nature of Mind project invites you to learn from thinkers in psychology, neuroscience, philosophy and Buddhism. Learn more at natureofmind.net. We hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so I'm really delighted uh, to welcome Dr. Amishi Jha to the uh, Nature of Mind project. And um, Dr. Jha is a a neuroscientist from uh, Miami, University of Miami in America. And um, she uh, published a book called Peak Mind uh, a couple of years ago, which is uh, a fantastic book. And I've just read it fully, fully annotated all my little pencil marks all the way through. Um, really delighted that you could join us, Amishi, on this oh, uh, on this uh, conversation. So yeah. Thank you so much. So wonderful to be here. Um, slight correction: my book isn't even six months out. Oh, oh, excuse me. Right, okay, it's brand new. <laughs> but I, I like that you feel it's, it's aging uh, much more than it's actually been been in existence. So. Okay, well, it's uh, actually actually of course it is because you you make quite a few references to the the COVID uh, pandemic and the challenges of of being in lockdown and so on and so forth and uh, yeah, so it feels very very current reading it. I must say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and and the full title just to read out is is Peak Mind: Twelve Minutes a Day to Find Your Focus, Meet the Challenge, and Be Fully Present When It Matters Most. So of course that immediately begs the question, wow, what is this peak mind? What is this vision that you have for what the, the, the human mind is capable of? Yeah, absolutely. So my expertise, my background, and thank you for mentioning a little bit about it. I'm a neuroscientist, but in my lab, we focus on the topic of the human brain's attention system. So to the short version of the answer would be a peak mind is a mind that is has full access to its attentional capabilities to be able to do the exact things that you mentioned are the subtitle of the book, to really be able to mm-hmm. not just have peak experiences, which is one of the things that people might might think it's about. It's actually about the ordinary and the challenge and meeting those moments of our lives fully as well. Yeah, I mean, you talk in the book about the, the sort of three attention systems, yeah. um, the flashlight, the um, the floodlight, and the juggler. And I wonder if you might, for those who haven't read the book, whether you might just sort of give a little summary there of, of your, your framework, if you like. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, this these metaphors, uh, we were talking earlier, I have, a, I have children, and, you know, part of the arising of these metaphors is a way to describe to them since they were little children how it is that this very precious and powerful brain system that we all carry around with us, attention, functions. So I just offer them as sort of ways to conceptualize what we know from the neuroscience literature is the way that attention attention functions. But maybe just to back up a moment, the exciting thing about the human brain's attention system is that it exists in our brains today because it advantaged our survival for all of our ancestors. So it came to be because of the benefits. I think most of us, when we think about attention, in fact, you know, in so many lectures that I give, if I ask people, do you think that you have peak attention? How many of you think that Mm. you have peak attention? Nobody raises their hand. All of us think we're in some kind of crisis moment. 
And somehow mm-hmm. that is just special to us that we're all having some kind of attentional challenge. And as you mentioned, over the course of the pandemic, it's even more pronounced. So attention, though, is a very powerful brain system that evolved to help our survival. And it did help our survival. And most broadly speaking, it, it we think it exists to solve a very big problem that the brain, as it became more and more of a complex organ, faces, which is that it cannot fully process all the information that is available to mm-hmm. it. So even perceptually, you know, there's a very thin slice of our visual field that we can actually get granular and clear information. Everything else is sort of fuzzy. And that's the way that the brain is organized. So attention allows for the prioritization of some information over other information. And when we take that prioritizing process, we can sample what's going on and then use the entirety of the brain to process it. So we have a limited amount of computational power. But if we take bit by bit of what's going on, we can use all of that power to put together what is going on and what actually is is existing around us. And frankly, within us, within our own a subjective and phenomenological experience as well. So the interior and exterior landscape, if you will. And these three systems that you were describing, and I appreciate you saying flashlight, because oftentimes I'll say torch, if that's not a common phrase. That is <laughs> um, but maybe we just start there, because the way in which we're going to prioritize varies. And that's what these three systems are describing. So how is some information given advantage over other information? And the flashlight or torch is really saying that the way we're going to prioritize is based on what the information is. So if it's this part of space, for example, that should take priority. That's where I'm going to direct this torch. And whatever it is that I'm directing it toward, I'm going to have better, clearer, crisper, higher integrity information so that now I can use the full brain's computational power to analyze that. And then, of course, if I shift it around, I'm going to, as we said a moment ago, get bit by bit. Now, the really interesting thing about that that system in particular is that when you look at the brain level, it absolutely, absolutely is the case that the quality of what you're seeing and hearing or whatever the sense system is, for example, is better. So, so if you think about just listening to my voice or your voice, and we pay attention to that voice, at, at the very earliest stages of neural processing, within a couple hundred milliseconds, a couple hundred thousandths of a second, it's as if the neurons are responding like the gain has been turned up, like the volume is louder. Mm. And even if the, mm. if the objective volume is the same, it appears that way in the way the brain is processing it. And mm. same thing if you aren't paying attention to it, it's as if it's softer. So that's yeah. really sure. highlighting yeah. just an actual yeah. flashlight, the benefits. We see things more clearly wherever we're directing that flashlight. Mm. But prioritizing information based on content is only one way we prioritize. So that kind of brings us to this second system of attention, which I call, you know, formally it's called the alerting system, but we can describe it as kind of a floodlight. And the floodlight Mm -hmm. metaphor is really because I'm trying to convey this notion of broad, receptive, observational, Mm -hmm. and not prioritizing one piece of content over another, but actually the thing we're prioritizing is time. What is most salient right now? And in this moment, you may not know if I should be listening to your voice or looking at my screen or here. And so I always like to, I I mean, the floodlight is helpful, but also, you know, that actually came about because I have a floodlight above my garage 
And anytime there's movement in my neighborhood or, you know, a raccoon or people walking their dogs, whatever it is, that floodlight mm-hmm. will go on. It's like, what's going on right now? You know, this is just a motion detector on it. But we know that feeling, even if we're driving in a, in a car or walking, we see some mm-hmm. kind of caution sign or flashing light. It means to us, mm-hmm. be alert, be aware and pay attention, but not in the same way as a narrowed, focused, privileging some information over another. So the first system is about prioritizing based on content. The second system is prioritizing based on time now. And the third system, which I often refer to as a juggler, executive control is the formal name. That system, and really we use that term executive within the psychological literature because it is like the executive of a company. This system's job is to ensure that goals and actions align. And in the executive of an organization, you're not going in and doing every individual task, but you're just overseeing, you're managing, you're coordinating, you're prioritizing. Mm -hmm. So at the broadest level, it's not about prioritizing based on content or time, like the other two systems, but prioritizing based on goals so that our actions can align with the goals themselves. Okay. Yeah. So that would be, you know, that sort of rounds out the way we think about attention. Most of us, when we hear that term might default to thinking it's focus. But it's actually much more than that. And as you can probably see, even the way that I'm describing it, you can connect the dots to what we'll be talking about, which is contemplative practice, in particular, certain forms of contemplative practice, like mindfulness meditation, which Hmm. definitely has all of these aspects within its purview. Yes, yes. Well, I'm looking forward to coming on to that. Uh, and, and especially when we start talking about, as you say, meditation practices. I just want to, I just want to thank you. And thank you for that wonderful survey as well, if you're, if you're thinking, um, uh, or at least the, 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 some of it. Um, you mentioned this thing, which I think uh, people want me to ask about, which is what some people are calling the crisis of attention. Yeah. I think, I think you even use that term in your book. And I don't know if this is the same as trough mind, uh, but uh, you mentioned people not, not being willing to put their hands up to, to, to having a peak mind. Yeah. But yeah, this whole area of, 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 I guess, I mean, well, there's various aspects we could go into it, but you know, obviously distraction is the thing people probably, a lot of those people in that theater are thinking about their inability to keep their mind focused. Um, so, I mean, I know in your book, you're encouraging us to sort of, uh, in a way, take responsibility for our minds as well. But um, yeah, I wonder if you might say a bit about, um, yeah, I guess, distraction and the crisis of attention. Yeah. 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 Because it's very real. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to raise my hand either when I ask, do you feel like your attention is on tip top shape? You know, but to look at the causes uh, for why we may be having this experience is is a worthy enterprise. And... um, one of those causes is, I mean, we can point to different things like, oh, it's social media, it's technology, yeah, it's the 24-7 news cycle. All of those are obviously contributing. Um, but frankly, the crisis of attention has been around since attention's been around. And even if we could, as you know, many of us have done, go away, be in the middle of nowhere, really silence on a retreat or in nature somewhere, And there's nothing external pulling at us. We left our phone at home. Nobody's going to bother us. There are no tasks required of us. We were still going to be left with our own minds and that internal Mm -hmm. distractibility. And of course, you know, now we take ourselves back to to regular life. We've got both of those to contend with, the internal distraction and chatter and the external pulls that are very, very real. 
But, you know, the way that I, t- I really want to think about it, because it, it, it very much is the case that the, the pain of the moment can be felt. But the way that I like to think about it is this is just exactly the way the attention system is going to function under these circumstances. So when we look in, in my lab, we look at a whole bunch of different groups that we call high stress, high demand professionals. Oh, yeah. So their lives, like many of ours, are filled with challenge. And, and in particular, they're characterized by something that uh, is becoming a more and more common term that's or acronym that's used in many business settings. And really, it comes from a lot of military and first responder um, professionals. And the acronym is VUCA. So V, volatile, U, uncertain, C, complex, and A, ambiguous. So V-U-C-A, VUCA. And when a human being is in those circumstances, um, what we know is that attention is not going to function as it should. It will become compromised. So now we can kind of think about those three systems I described and understand the way in which it may become compromised. So if we just think of the flashlight or the torch, um, we should be able to direct it at will. It should be able to just be directed. And by the way, it's the juggler that's going to do the directing. There's a management system that says, point your attention right here. And then we should be able to hold our attention. Under these VUCA circumstances, it will not stay steady, meaning it will be moving around, or it may be hyperfixated. So both are dysfunctional, where it can't mm-hmm. un- unlock or it can't stay steady. And, and you know, this is the other reason I like the metaphor of a, of a flashlight, because it describes this various, very important aspect of this, what's formerly called the orienting system, this flashlight system. Under normal circumstances, let's not, let's put VUCA to the side for a moment. You can decide where you want to walk, uh, I'm sorry, where you want to point the flashlight. Let's say you're walking down a darkened path. You want to direct it toward the space in front of you so you can yeah. maneuver. But if there was a weird sound or a strange sound or howling or something like that, you're going to take that flashlight and immediately direct it to where you thought the sound came from. Very healthy and normal thing to do. So it has the capability of directing, but it can automatically be pulled or yanked as well. And so these features, that's when when I said that under VUCA circumstances, you can't keep it steady. It could be that it's constantly being pulled in these other directions by external stimuli or internally generated stimuli. Yeah. Or, and those, by the way, would be people that we w- might even describe as having attention deficit disorder. They cannot keep the flashlight steady. Okay. But in con- in the context of something like depression, for example, the flashlight is, is now stuck on certain kinds of mental content. And it cannot extract itself away when it needs to be doing something else. So it could be depressogenic or negative thoughts. It's stuck on there. So both of those would be kind of examples of distractibility, but definitely dysfunction. And we see the same thing with these yeah. other two systems. Under under these VUCA circumstances, the floodlight is not just like broad and receptive to what's going on in the moment, but it's hypervigilant. You have that sense of, of the need to actually prepare yourself for something in everything you do in your life. And this yeah. is what we often see with anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorders, that that amped right. up floodlight on everything, almost blinding you, um, is what's experienced. And then yeah. finally, under these kind of VUCA circumstances, um, the, the juggler is not keeping all the balls in the air. The balls are dropping. Uh, you can't maintain goals. Um, you can't shift when there's an update required. Um, and you certainly cannot ensure that your behavior and your goals align. So a very yeah. disorganized 
state. And I think that because VUCA is obviously on a continuum, we're not just all in with a very volatile, ambiguous, complex circumstance. We're going to have varying degrees of it. And we're going to be more uh, in that context or not. And we will see the challenges to our attention. So, you know, we've seen the impact of um, these kind of circumstances in groups like first responders, emergency services professionals, um, medical and nursing staff, when they're under high stress over multiple weeks, months, even years, attention is going to do this characteristic thing of not functioning properly. And I think that is what we mean when we're saying a crisis of attention, especially over the last couple of years, in some sense, a global pandemic is the ultimate collective VUCA experience. Uh, Of course, yeah. And so if we feel the sense of, I don't know what I'm doing, I can't keep a hold of what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't, everything feels scary and overwhelming. And I don't even know what my goals are. It's exactly what, unfortunately, my liter- my, my research had been saying over the last decade is going to be the case. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't expect the entire world to be my laboratory in some sense where we're all experiencing that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, in my mind, this begs the question, of course, of, of course, what, what do we do in these focus situations? I, um, shall I go straight to that question? Well, I was going to... Uh, uh, yeah, let's. Well, maybe could I just? I'll just ask that. I've got something else I want to ask about 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 that state of, in a way, what one might call overwhelm or what you call VUCA. Um Because what you're very clear about is that the answer to this isn't um, to change your life, and in certain ways, sometimes you just can't. Anyway, you say if you're in the middle of a COVID pandemic lockdown, you can't do anything about that. And if you're if you want to be a first responder then you, you don't, you know, if that's the job you love, it's not that you want to leave that job. So, so I th- I think you've got a really interesting perspective on what, what to, to do with this circumstance. I wonder if you might say, but I mean, I'm, I'm particularly thinking of what you said about decentering and meta-awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if you might say something yeah. about that. You know, all of the, it, it's not just that you can't often change your life, but no matter what, VUCA is going to find you. <laughs> in your life yes. <laughs> all of us yes. will, this is what we wouldn't another way to say it is this is a this is the tapestry of human suffering that we're going to yeah. face these circumstances yeah. and this is why it connects so beautifully with the contemplative approach because yeah. we're, we're, we have to accept that as the nature of what's going to happen and even if we say i'm not going to change my my profession um and i or i can't change my profession um and even if you do change your profession, you will be met with these circumstances. So, yes. so finding a different way. And by the way, you know the other the other simple thing, not simple, but solution people offer is like just throw your phone away. Like just don't engage. Yeah, sure, in technology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just go live in 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 you know a monastic environment. Which I wish I could say even monastics were protected <laughs> from this, but they will not be right. And we we know, for example, and I describe this in the book as well, that um, medieval monks complained. That even though they had left their, you know, regular lives to join uh, this this devotion, devotional life, they were plagued by things like, "What am I going to have for lunch?" and yes. <laughs> you know, and "What am I going to do after this this particular session that I'm in?" So it doesn't go away. And every everything we talked about that I kind of made this example of VUCA as an external thing, we carry VUCA around in our own mind. We are explicitly generating those circumstances. So yeah, there are many solutions that we can take and we must cultivate because the thing about uh, challenges and difficulty is that 
they diminish or deplete attentional availability. And then we need our attention to maneuver through the challenge. So the exact thing we need that would help us in these circumstances, right. we have less of. And, and that's why I do describe attention as a type of fuel. So we're either fueled up or our gas tank is, you know, getting, we're having less and less available to us. Um, and in some sense, what contemplative practice and these other sort of in the moment strategies are offering us is to stay, keep, keep everything properly fueled yeah. up and to internally refuel ourselves every day so we have better access. But there are so many different things we can do. And, you know, an example would be, you, you mentioned meta-awareness um, and decentering. That's one example of what we might do. And just to, to kind of clarify what I mean, but when I use those terms, in some sense, meta-awareness is that alerting system, but done in a very particular way. So it's broad, receptive, paying attention to what's happening right now, but not in that sort of deer in a headlight, sort of too, too almost frozen, uh, overwhelmed state, but being able to, uh, informally, this would be the description or definition of, of meta-awareness, an awareness of the contents and processes at play in one's mind and situation around them yeah. moment by moment. So we're fully aware. Another shorthand would be attention to your attention. The meta piece is that looking into inwards. So, um, and this is where practices like open monitoring practices can be very, very helpful. Your broad receptive stance with a steadiness uh, of being able to take that observational view without getting frozen, overwhelmed, or, um, uh, yeah, frozen or overwhelmed would be the two bad, bad consequences of it. And, you know, one approach would be to distance oneself. So if you want to look at what's going on right now and not be locked into the story that the mind has created or a particular detail about the environment, et cetera, you've got to step away from it. And and attention cannot be in multiple places at once. So you're either in the middle of a very intense and difficult emotion or you're watching that you are that 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 one that the experience of a difficult mo emotion has arisen, but you cannot be in both places at once, uh, fully. Yeah. So, in some sense, yeah. pulling away, and that's what decenter is talking about, uh, is taking this observational stance explicitly by psychologically distancing oneself, and that doesn't mean closing off or denying it. It's more like, and again, this is where you know having children and describing what this is to them is very helpful. I'd say to them, it's sort of like being a. a um, I don't know if you have this in the in the UK, but I'm sure you do, like a traffic helicopter, right? So you're hovering above, maybe there's a bit, do you have this? Is this a common thing where the, that sometimes on the TV, they might have a helicopter in the sky kind of looking down on what's happening in a particular circumstance, like a busy road and saying, oh, this, you know, this particular intersection has been blocked well, up. Maybe in London, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure, so yeah. a traffic yeah. helicopter or a drone, let's say, or a bird, you know, depending on what you want to say, yeah. or a fly yeah. on the wall. The point is, you are somewhere else and you're watching what's going Anything on. Anything can fly. <laughs> a fly, a bird, um, a drone. It's just, you know, there's so many different ways that you can approach this, but the point yeah. is there yeah. is a distance between the experience as it's unfolding and a reporting of that experience in a kind of third person or objective manner. So it would Right. Be so if you're so if you're if you're aware that you're stressed, you can't be in the middle of stress anymore because by definition there's distance and therefore you're in a sense this is what I guess what you mean by decentered. You're not centered anymore in the, in the middle of that stress. You're observing it from above. And therefore, in that sense, you're not 
stressed in that moment. Well, so you are going to be, well, you are and, and you aren't, right? So you're basically, if you think about what kind of at a granular level would happen, you're in the middle of a very overwhelmed situation. You've got a deadline and you can't make it. And you feel that like, I'm never going to get this yeah. done. That internal chatter starts building up. And then you're so lost in the internal chatter that you're not even doing the thing that is the cause of that stress, which is getting the project yes. done, right? So yes. you see you're, that you're in a loop, like you're stuck, you're overwhelmed, you're almost paralyzed. And so then that would be the moment to say, ah, maybe I need a little bit of distance here. And so the distance would be not denying the moment. It's just mm. taking a little pause away from that direct experience of it and saying, what is actually going on in this moment? Amishi is feeling that she will not make this deadline. I mean, mm. she cares about this uh, deadline. She's feeling, mm. a, uh, you know, whatever. She's feeling tightness in her jaw or her heart's beating faster. I'm using a third person perspective. So I'm, cause I'm watching yeah. it. I'm the reporter watching what's going yeah. on. I'm describing it factually, not, I'm not justifying conceptually elaborating. It's like, if I weren't me and I had to see if I was watching the situation, what could I say is going on? If I were um, you know, just taking a kind of a raw data of the experience and just doing that does provide that psychological distance, but it also kind of dials down the intensity of the directly experienced emotion. And then, then you can kind of get your head back together to say, okay, now where do I need to focus to get this report done? But so it's not denying or not experiencing it. It's, it's just yeah. experiencing it from this other perspective. Yeah. Well, th so some, some of what you're saying, I, I, I can, some of what I can imagine some of my Buddhist friends saying, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that idea or maybe even do it a bit. What you can bring to this that none of us can is that you've got actual laboratory evidence of the impact of this type of um, awareness, what you call meta-awareness. And um, have you really have you, is there anything that comes to mind in terms of, if you like, you know, a really striking part, bit of evidence from your research that really sort of backs this up? Yeah, I mean, the, the broader evidence from all of the, you know, Essentially, if we look at contemplative practice, in particular mindfulness training, we can find um, research that suggests that the flashlight is stronger. You can direct it willfully better. Right. You find that the right. floodlight can observe, whether it's at a distance or um, just with granularity of the situation going on, better. And the juggler is able to maintain the goals and align behavior better. So that's the yeah. sort of, broadly speaking, the powerful evidence yeah. that that we see when it comes to um, meta awareness, which is you know what we're, we're, we're cultivating in a way with psychological distancing. They're they're yoked. They're not the same thing. Um, is improvements in psychological health? Um, it, improvements in things like uh, the likelihood, and this is beautiful work done in the UK. Um, reduced rates of uh, recurrence of intractable depression, for example. Right. Um, and, and, and even when we look directly at the brain, we see that there's a dialing down of activity and brain regions tied and, and more active during emotional um, overwhelm. So strong emotional responses seem to be less prevalent under this decentered approach um, without sacrificing the memory for the experience, which is very important. It's not like you're dulling out. You actually can get better granular uh, accounts of what's going on, but because you're not so overwhelmed, you're actually even able to see the details of a situation better. Yeah, I, I'm really, I've, I'd really love to. If, is that all right? Can I move on to this next question? Please, is that, please yeah, yeah. I, I've really, I'd really love to ask about this because you do. There's a lovely, uh, lovely, is not the right word, but a really powerful section actually in the book about memory, mm. and um, 
personally, I'm someone who's not got brilliant memory, but one of my childhood friends teases me about it, that I don't remember things that we did together. And um, and you tell a similar story in your book about, about one of your, uh, I think it was an army officer who had a similar experience with his own children, where he was forgetting memories and uh, forgetting experiences that they'd had together. And I've just, my understanding of what you're saying is that when one is living with constant mental engagement, you know, from minute to minute, from the moment one wakes up to the moment one goes to sleep <clears throat> and doing a lot of what we call multitasking, but you call task switching. Um, when we're living in that kind of constant kind of activity without any kind of breaks, then our, our kind of working memory, uh, so to speak, or I think you call it a mental whiteboard, just fills up. And then we're actually far less likely to in I think you use the word encode memories, you know, that those experiences are not, and that the only time we can encode them is now. There's no point taking a photo and saying, I'll look at it at the weekend. It, it has to be now. Is, I'm really interested if you could say a bit more about that, about this kind of overload of the, the working memory through this constant activity and how that impacts on, on, on well, remembering our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just want to say that uh, what we're finding is that it's not that, even the example I gave of the the, a service member who, yeah, was the, the, the anecdote that he shared was that he'd be with his, he was with his children and they're recounting events that they know he was physically present for. I mean, he was there, he's sitting with them, he's in the yeah. photograph, but he has yeah. no actual memory of the experience mm. himself. And it's not that he forgot. That was the insight that came from our conversation. It's that he wasn't there when he was there. He was not encoding what was going on in that moment. It's not that he had it encoded and then it drifted away. That is an organic memory challenge. I mean, forgetting is a thing that can happen, which also has its its power. But what we, mm. we surmise is going on, and we know happens uh, when we look at other studies of people that are overwhelmed and what we'd call mind wandering, meaning having off-task mm. thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. It's a very technical, it's not just your mind is meandering, it's that it's actually not present to what's going on in the moment. Mm. When mind wandering is occurring, you are missing the um, uh, experience as it's occurring because your mind, attention can only be in one place at one time. So if the flashlight is not pointed to the external environment, the people around you, the circumstances, but it's actually gripped by something internal, a preoccupation, a worry, planning, a me troubling memory, you will miss all that's occurring around you um, because it's not present to you. So hmm. another way to say this is attention is the doorway by which we remember information. And if attention is not available in a moment, it will not allow you to encode information. So the trajectory would be you pay attention to what's going on in the moment. It then allows you to put it on this mental whiteboard, a temporary scratch space, and then it can go into long-term memory. So it's mm. not that it's in long-term memory and sometimes it, it somehow it disappears. It never made it fully onto the whiteboard yeah. because what was on the whiteboard was wherever that flashlight was pointing. Like I said, ruminating about a past event or catastrophizing, catastrophizing mm. about a future event. And that's what this service member said to us. It's like, yeah, I wasn't there because I, my mind was not there. I wasn't even aware of what was happening around me. I was really preoccupied about mm. something else. I was mm. mind wandering. So yeah. when we get that sense, we realize, oh, maybe there are reasons why I don't remember certain experiences. I was somewhere else, even though I'm in the photo, I was somewhere else when it was transpiring. And so that goes with what you were saying about don't take a photograph and think about encoding it 
that you'll remember it later. You will not remember it later. You missed mm. your chance. It's something called episodic memory, which means you are encoding the episode, the lived phenomenological experience of the episode as it's occurring. And if you miss your attention being available in the moment, that's it. The moment is gone. Well, in fact, I think you even said in the book that, that you've, you've done studies or there have been studies where if you take a photo of an experience, you, you're less likely to remember it than if you if you didn't. If you Absolutely. Yeah, this is now, this yeah. is very intriguing data because it's so counterintuitive. Like um, there were some studies done where people even went to um, museums and had to either, they, they could, you know, choose to take photographs or in some instances were not or asked to not take photographs or actually take photographs to share later versus for their own personal memory of it. And it was always when it was in the moment tied to directly experiencing it, that the, the photograph was aligned with better memory for the episode itself. Uh, so oh, rather than to be shared later. Oh yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And part of it is yeah. oftentimes when we are taking a photograph, we're so preoccupied about the tech, technological requirements of being able to do it, that we're actually not experiencing the scene. We're managing the process of getting the photograph taken. Um, yeah. Or other times yeah. we're just phoning it in, so to speak. We're just getting the photograph and we've been thinking about yeah. something else the entire time. Or been getting fascinated about sharing this with our friends and how jealous they'll be or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Even that whatever is not being in the moment, right? So you are just not there. Exactly, yeah. You're already thinking about the That's future. It. So, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And the the other thing you said that um, in your book that, that that can happen when this um, this mental whiteboard is just kind of constantly full. I, I don't know if I'm using the right metaphor here, yeah. but constantly full is is also more emotional reactivity, less emotional regulation. Would you mind saying a bit about that? Yeah. Now this is you know the the whiteboard is really curious because this this um, brain capacity of working memory. Just to kind of clarify what that means. Long-term memory is what we'd say sort of the hardened representation. So if I ask you, you know, do you remember what your first, your primary school looked like from the outside? You're like, it, it's not at the top of your mind, but if you took a moment, you'd be like, yeah, yeah I remember. It out. Yeah. So what happened in that moment? I mean, somehow it's it, not somehow we know how we think it's stored in long-term memory, but my, my cue to you that says, pull that memory up. Um, you were able to kind of uh, access that memory. And what happened that allowed you to even have the mental image in this moment, when I said, think of what your primary school looked like, is it went onto your mental whiteboard. It was moved from long-term memory into working memory. And working memory is, is this temporary scratch space like a mental whiteboard, but it's peculiar. It's, it's, it's a whiteboard with disappearing ink. So unless you redraw it over and over and over again, um, you know, like a two second, like, let's say five minutes later, I say, do you remember what your primary school looked like? It would take you less long to remember it in a moment, but it would still take you some time. It wouldn't be immediate. Right. Yes. So, so you're putting things on your whiteboard from long-term memory, but you're also putting things onto the whiteboard from this attentional doorway, that flashlight in some sense is getting it onto the whiteboard. The whiteboard is like an actual whiteboard in that it's limited. It's not an unlimited space. It's, it's mm. quite a, a constrained size and it's constrained in time because the ink will disappear. So we can only have so much on, on our whiteboard. And yes, if we throw random things on there that are not related to the moment, uh, we won't encode the memory. Um, we won't remember it later because it never made it onto the whiteboard to then get into long-term memory. And this is obviously very, I'm giving you a very simplified, there's a lot of nuance to this. So if anybody sure. with a neuroscience background yeah. is listening to me, they'll be like, there's other instances where that might not happen. Absolutely. But I'm just saying <laughs> it's one way to conceptualize 
all of this uh, in terms of the challenge with, with overwhelm and attention and going to your question regarding emotional reactivity. But in some sense, um, when we have less attentional fuel, and what I mean by that is that somehow the, the, the input systems, the attentional systems are not working properly. The whiteboard is cluttered with mental content we've generated internally. So now, you know, the flashlights may be even pointing at something, but there's so much other stuff on here already that you're ruminating on, yeah. for example. There's no space for the new information to come in. And, you know, you can think about it like this. If you're at a, um, let's say, some kind of a social gathering and you have to give a speech and you just barely, you somebody told you five minutes ago, you're going to have to give a speech. We want you to say something about this. So you're kind of trying to get it in your head of like what you're going to say. And then you're introduced to all these people coming in. Oh, please, you know, please meet this new person and this new person. Right. And, and they're saying their names to you and they're talking to you. There's so much preoccupation right now as you're mentally rehearsing and crafting that speech that you probably will not remember the names of any of these people. Um, you might have some vague familiarity that their their face looks familiar, but you cannot do both things at once because mm. if the whiteboard had no nothing, no preoccupation, sure, you could hear the name, see the face, get it on the whiteboard and might have better chances of making it into long-term memory. But when there's already stuff going on in there, uh, no way is it going to make it. And yeah. oftentimes yeah. it's not about giving a speech that our whiteboard is preoccupied. It's some event that's already occurred that we're ruminating on, bringing it up over and over yeah. again, or it's a catastrophic, yeah. uh, worrisome thought that keeps keeping its uh, the whiteboard cluttered. So, you know, I think understanding the mind in this way can be helpful because then we don't just feel like we're somehow failures. Our, our brain is not broken. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Whatever is the center of our conscious experience is going to be what's on the whiteboard. And new information will be challenged of getting into our long-term memory when that's the case. But now you can actually, knowing this, you can actually kind of use your meta-awareness to view what is actually on your whiteboard. Like, oh, yeah. the reason I don't know what's going on around me is I'm preoccupied about, you know, this upcoming demand I have on me, or I'm so sad right now that all I'm thinking about over and over again is this difficult memory. And then you can do something about it. This is where the meta awareness can lead to this decentering approach of let's, what if we take a moment and allow this experience that's happening on the whiteboard um, to occur, but I watch what's going on. What you'll notice is that the compulsion to redraw, because that's what you're doing at the whiteboard. You're you're drawing some, like, writing some preoccupying thought, and then you're writing it again, yeah, and then you're writing it again, and it yeah. feels like the loop of rumination. And that's what you're doing is you're keeping active. You are an actual um, participant in the rumination. It's not happening automatically. But when you take that distance perspective and you watch what's going on the ink will fade and it will yeah. do its normal course um, because you've broken the cycle of constantly reactivating yeah. a difficult thought. Yeah. I want, I want to ask you about a mind wandering. Thank you. You've mentioned it uh, because yeah, you're, you're, you're quite down on mind wandering, of course, um, in, in the sense of that rumination of, of, of course, which is, I totally understand. And you also have this notion of, in a sense, positive mind wandering. I think you call it positive daydreaming in your book. But like these pauses or empty spaces that are, that you're saying are so crucial in a day. So in a way, that would be the antidote to that constant mental engagement we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Would you mind saying about? And of course, this is something we resist because it's boring, right? Uh, you give the example in your book, which is a great one of you know being in the line, the checkout line at a supermarket, 
and uh, you know, using the time to check some messages and check an email instead of just standing there. So can you say a bit about this? Cause I personally, I've really tried to do this as a bit of a practice is to, is to create these pauses and empty spaces. Coincidentally, 12 minutes a day was my, um, I do a 12 minute block was my, uh, was my, uh, precept if you like oh. so hard because the mind just doesn't want to stop for 12 minutes and do nothing. Yeah. So, but anyway, so I'd, I'd be really interested. Actually, there's two parts of this question. Why do you think that's so important? And, and also why is it so hard? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's start with why it's important. So, yeah. So, um, you know, the broader category of what we've been talking about is mind wandering or mental chatter or internal arising of, of thought, feeling, sensation, whatever it is. Um, we could say is spontaneous mental activity. It's just the thing that shows up in the mind and really spontaneous thought is the way we think about it. So, we might not even understand why, but some thought mental content arises and, and then we do something with it. We either keep it active or we push, we try to push it away. It won't work. Um, or we let it dissipate and then it arises, something else arises. And that's the nature of the mind. I mean, we really consider the mind as a thought pump. Uh, it's just pumping it out. And, and if you are conscious and, and, um, awake, you're going to have spontaneous thought arise. So, I mean, the first thing to say is, if you have any notions that you're going to clear your mind and not have that occur, <laughs> you will fail be, and, and, and it will be a waste yeah. of your time because it is, you're denying the nature of the mind. Um, so, so um, the distinction I'm making is as I'm, I'm saying that mind wandering is when that mental content arises as it will, and then it's sort of fueled through our attention to keep it more and more active in the context of actually needing our attention to be somewhere else. So off task thoughts during an ongoing task. You know, my, my, my intention right now is to have this conversation with you. Yes. But if I'm actually thinking about, oh my gosh, it's so rainy outside. How am I ever going to go be able to drink yeah. water? I'm not going to have a very fulfilling conversation. You're not going to feel fulfilled yeah. in this conversation. But you're going to get right. the sense of like, where is she? She's not really yeah. into my questions. And I wouldn't be, right? I'd actually be having this internal conversation with myself. Yeah. So that would be yeah. off-task thought. And when we have mind-wandering defined in that very specific way, off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity, we see more errors are made. Memories are not as, as strong. Um, Decision-making becomes faulty and almost irrational and emotional reactivity can arise. Um, so there are definitely negative consequences to mind wandering. And when you said I was sort of down on it, it's just stating the reality that it will cost us to mind wander when we, should, yeah. when we fully intend for our mind to be somewhere else. But the flip side of that is, remember, don't deny that the mind is a, is a thought pumping um, entity. And mm. if we don't allow spontaneous thought to emerge, we will also have consequences. Meaning, mm. think, you know, it's, it's a question of why does the mind do this? Why is there, why is it a thought pump? Why does mental content sputter in our mind over and over again? And one of the, there are many reasons we think this might be happening. One is actually tied to something very fundamental, um, which is it may be part of the machinery of how we form memories. So we were talking about memories a moment ago. Um, yeah. And, you know, when we experience something, obviously I was talking about it getting on the, the whiteboard, et cetera. But then the, the, the way long-term memory happens is that it's essentially it's going from a state, again, I'm going to say caveat, this is simplified for a broad 
intelligent audience. When we have a memory, and when we're trying to remember something, you know, it has to be attended to. It goes on this mental whiteboard. And then essentially what it means to go into long-term memory, there's no box it's going into. It's just that neurons go from just being activated to actually structurally connected to each other in a more efficient manner. So a hard-coded memory would mean it's changing the structure of the brain to allow for memory to occur. Now, structural changes don't happen like this. They happen through repeated, you know, sort of like neurons that fire together, mm-hmm. wire together. So it has to be some way for that firing to happen. So there's we want, one of the things that we, we know that this happens over sleep is that we experience something and then during sleep, they're fired together. So all these little events we've had all day, they may be um, allowing for mm-hmm. memory to occur through this process called memory consolidation. But even as we're awake and nothing else is occupying us, that the neurons will be doing their thing. And so when we feel the arising of a thought, it may be that this little bundle of neurons are firing together and it arises to the point of conscious uh, acknowledgement of of a thought. So the first thing to say is if you never allow that white space in your life, where you're always doing task to task to task to task, just like you said in the context of standing in line at a Mm. grocery store, you may be denying your opportunity for spontaneous thought that may support your own memory to later be better represented. That's one consequence. The other thing is that we know when people don't have these white spaces, and I just mean by white spaces, there's no task. It's not that you're having off-task thought, it's that you don't have a dedicated task that you're trying to do. It's almost like giving the juggler a break, saying, you don't have to manage right now, just there is no requirement, right? And so if we think about this as what you do when you say you're daydreaming, right? Usually you're sitting in uh, you're sitting or walking somewhere. There's no particular thing you need to figure out or um, mm. you know, you don't even have a particular recurring thought or worry. It's just letting the mind do whatever arises. You know, if, you, if the sound of a bird captures your attention, oh, look at that, a bird. Or, you know, yeah. you have some grumble, you know, some kind of grumbling in your stomach. Oh, look at that. I might be hungry. You're just allowing the mental content to appear and you're not constraining it or controlling it in any way. When people do this, not only will their memory likely be better, but we know that their mood is going to improve. We know that their creativity may be better supported. And 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 they'll feel sort of this sense of, um, I don't know, general positivity and, and buoyancy, mentally buoyant. So there is a real value in doing it. And this is where I think the cost yeah. of a, a highly technological uh, 24-7 life can be very problematic because it may not feel like it, but what you're doing when you pick up your phone and you look at it is you are now in a task context. The task is whether it's even something you think is fun, like, oh, I'm just going to go on social media and see what's going on. Well, now the task is observe yeah. what's going on, engage yeah. with it. If you have some kind of feedback from something you've written, respond to it, um, catch up with what somebody's uh, posted, et cetera. So all of, or if it's email, forget it. That's very yeah. tasks focused yes, because you're actually course, having yeah. to think and generate and you are not giving this spontaneous thought any moments to arise. And it's, um, and it will cost you in some sense. So that's so what are the kind of things you can do. Yeah. You mentioned you can use. I know. I still there's still that other question pending of yeah. why is it so hard. What 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 are the kind of things you, you mentioned? You use this word procedural activities like walking. What are the kind of things you can do? Okay, you can't check your social media. That doesn't count as a positive mind wandering chance. But what 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 what, what can you well, do? I think that the, the key is that there's no particular task. Low attentional demands. Right. So the reason taking a right. walk, if you, if you, by the way, it would not be no task if you were going to take a walk on the on the edge of a cliff. 
(laughs) That is going to take a lot of focus. So it's not just the act of walking that makes it uh, open. Or charging to the shops before they close. Right. (laughs) It's something that's not going to take a lot of willful, planful. Basically, the flashlight doesn't need to be pointed anywhere in particular. Right. Floodlight's just kind of checking out what's going on, and the juggler does not have any goal it needs to accomplish. So low attentional demands. Um, walks in nature are fantastic for multiple reasons. But of course, if you spend your time walking in nature preoccupied about the thing, you're no longer benefiting from that spontaneous thought. So it's not just about the context. It's about the mental way you're going to approach the context. Because frankly, even a walk through a busy cityscape can have that quality. It's just the way you're holding your mind um, in in the way that allows it to have the buoyant free flow of spontaneous thought arise. And, and as a neuroscientist, do you have an, an answer to that other question? Like, why is that so hard? Like, why why do we get, you know, what, in a sense, what is boredom? You know, yeah. what is that? Yeah, in many ways, you know, it's interesting because people think of boredom as the cause for something. Like, well, you know, it's the reason I have to stop doing this. because because. But I don't think that's why, I don't know. This, I mean, I'm, this is now I'm speculating. Um, I think okay. boredom is a feedback system. So we as uh, human beings needed some way to snap us out of what we're doing to see the opportunity costs before us. And by opportunity costs, I mean, what else could I be doing right now? Or should I be doing right now? To even ask the question, I need to turn my attention somewhere else. There had to be something that was slightly noxious in our phenomenology that would say, this is not comfortable. I need to switch. So Uh, why does that, this is not comfortable feeling arise um, partly it just could be that doing the same thing over and over has an aspect of that to it as a mechanism to get you to check out that you don't, in, in our evolutionary ancestors days, don't get eaten, make sure you're aware of the weather, oh, sure. shelter if you need to, yeah. just something that arises that cues you that says, what's going on right now? Is there something else I should be doing instead? That I think is what we consider now boredom because boredom is essentially right. saying to us, the current situation is unsatisfactory and action must be taken. Right. So if we yeah. realize, ah, it's the mind showing me that feedback, we can make it, we can make a choice in that moment. Yeah. I mean, sure. The feedback is boredom. There's nothing intrinsic in some sense about that feeling. It's just a feeling like any other. Um, and I can question and determine what I want to do based on it's arising. And so, you know, I mean, yeah. if you think about uh, doing a, a, an extended meditation retreat, there's many times that it's, you know, you, your, your, your instinct might be to run out of the hall and just run back to your car and just get in. And you know, I've definitely yes. had that feeling like, yeah. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Usually in the first couple of days, uh, then it's like, why would I ever want to go yeah. back to that? Anything, right? It's, so things can shift. But yeah. if you realize, yeah. yes, that is the strong uh, feeling occurring because this is so um, uh, not in line with what uh, I might typically be doing or um, there's an edginess or, or a, an energetic sort of frenetic quality to the momentum yeah. of my life and I'm, I'm resisting it. So, but if we start thinking yeah. boredom as the feedback instead of the cause for anything, it can really help oh, us free yeah. up what we do next based on its arising. Um, because, yeah. you know, yeah. think about the many circumstances for many professions where it doesn't matter if you're bored. You know, if you're in the middle of surgery and you have that boredom feeling arise, you can't just drop your, your you know, <laughs> tools and leave or in the middle of fighting a fire or in the middle of uh, yeah. surveying a particular part of the city as a, as a first responder or in the in, as a nurse or, um, you know, physician monitoring equipment. Like yeah. there are 
or baggage screen. I mean, you could think of all of these contexts yeah. or, t- yeah, yeah. or a parent watching your children play the same game the thousandth time, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. where the feedback may arise, but we choose to do something else with that feedback. Like, yes. Yeah. And so the same thing with standing in line at the grocery store, the, the default may be because we've trained ourselves, frankly, like you stand in line, you pull out your phone. There should be no moments where I'm not actually engaged in a task. And then, and then, and then you might see, you might interpret that as, I'm bored right now. And instead say, ah, I'm going against the grain of what the mind may do in an unconstrained way, but I'm choosing not to do that. What does it feel like if I yeah. just leave the phone yeah, in my yeah. pocket? Um, what if I actually use this opportunity to not have the flashlight pointing at the phone, but just take a survey of what's happening around me? And you know, it's yeah. not like we might be able to do that for every moment, but if we can recoup some of those moments for spontaneous thought, we may have more yeah. opportunities for moments of joy. Yeah. We may encode memories better. Um, we may have mood that is lifted more more frequently. I love it. So b- sort of boredom as a kind of creative prompt in a way. They can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, so uh, I did um, uh, I did ask some of my friends uh, on Facebook actually talking about social media what what they what they'd like uh, what they'd like me to ask you. So I'll come on to a couple of those questions. Um, I mean you. I suppose before we do that, just sort of because they're a bit more, not quite random, but they're not related That's to your book yeah. quite. The, the final thing I must ask you about the book, of course, is, well, your prescription, you, 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 which is on the cover there, your your sort of minimum required dosage, I think you say, for, for training attention. This is based on lots of studies. And you've got three types of meditation. One, which is very much um, about, uh, I guess, using that flashlight, you know, focusing on breathing and the, the experience of the body. One that's much more open. Um, I think you call it open monitoring, and one that's uh, more around connection. Well, these are three types of meditation that you uh, c- could you just could you just tell us this extraordinary minimum required dose? It'll be a great relief to a lot of us who think we have to meditate for an hour a day. So, uh, t- tell us a bit about that, Amishi. Well, let me just preface this by saying, probably a great idea to meditate an hour a day, um, right. <laughs> because it's still the case that the more you practice, at least in our hands, uh, in our data set, the more you benefit. But part of the whole motivation, because it's a strange project, you know, most people don't uh, set out to study meditation to say, what's the absolute minimum I need to do, right? It's it's usually like you want to see what contemplative practice is is doing. You want to understand the nature of its capacity to change the brain. And there's no real reason to think doing the absolute minimum is going to do anything useful. But I had a very practical set of considerations because I was working with, in our research, with groups that don't have a lot of time, time pressured, high demand professionals. And if I suggested to them that they should do an hour a day, they would say, thank you very much. See you later, ma'am. Like, you know, it was not even going to be the starting point of a conversation. And the other thing that was happening is that they had decided what they thought the minimum dose was. We're going to do three minutes. You know, if I asked to come in to do a, an eight hour training, they'd say, we'll get, we'll give you an hour. Right. So they, there were, there are ways in which minimum dose is going to be imposed upon you from the structures and organizational leadership you engage with. So I basically said, you know, I don't know yet if me coming in for an hour or four hours is beneficial for your time at all. It may be a complete waste of time to do that. So let's ask a series, let's, let's write a series of grants, which allow us to see what is the minimum amount of time and what are the kinds of Hmm. minimum amount of content type of content we should include so that we see tractable benefits especially as it relates to attention mood etc yeah and so just to say that that that's where it comes from it's not like a some kind of a 
um, a, a default that says do the least you can. You know, that's not really no, no, no. I understand. Um, yeah. Because in some levels, if you think, if you, in some level, if you think about the nature of research that's done with contemplative practice, it actually went to the other extreme. You know, most of the initial studies were done with you might call the Olympians of meditation, people that spent yeah. twenty two thousand to forty four thousand hours. It's like twenty two years of one's life um, engaging in men, continuous, not not in one sitting, but continuous yeah, practice. Yeah. So we know, we, we knew when we started our work that that is going to result in tractable benefits. But what about less time? So, you know, the model that we had started out with was, was sort of mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which were the most broadly available manualized programs out there. And that's about eight hours of training, meeting with the trainer two to two and a half hours a week. And then 45 minutes of daily practice for the eight weeks of the program. So that was a known kind of starting point. But now yeah. we're going to work in these contexts. We kept them out of time, still the weeks, eight hours. We kept them out of training time, still about 24, 28 hours. We cut the amount of practice time down to 30 minutes. And then we said, you know, be honest with us. And these were, by the way, pre-deployment Marines. That was our group. And that, that, Point that said, you know, this is what we're prescribing you, but please, when you when you give you when you, we give you this little card that tells you to actually fill it in, know that that's precious data to us. Be honest with us of what you yeah. actually did. Now, of course, we do it through apps. We don't even need to ask them to be honest. We're just tracking yeah. how many times they click on our icon to do the practice. Um, yeah. <clears throat> nobody was doing thirty minutes a day, really. Like it was just not happening. They show up to class, but they were not yeah. doing the practice. And then we saw there was a whole range of how much people practice. Some practice zero. There were a couple that practiced 30 minutes many days, but not every day. And then all the types of variability you might see in between. So instead of saying, you know, does it work or not work? Is it effective or not effective? Let's, we decided to do what we call an exploration of a dose response effect. Does how much they did have an yeah. impact on how many, the nature of the benefits that we saw? And that's where the basic result that allowed me to start this part of the conversation by saying doing an hour is probably a great idea because what we saw was the more people right. practiced the more they benefited meaning the stronger their attention was the better their mood was relative to those that did less so that was great but then i wanted to ask the second part of the question is at what point did it really start kicking in and matter uh, mm -hmm. meaning that we we saw that they looked like it was either protecting them from decline in their attention over high stress intervals or they were actually getting better than where they started. And that threshold was about 12 minutes a day. Okay, so, so but more was better and less was really not having an effect. Yeah, sure, yeah. So that was 12 yeah. minutes a day. And then in the subsequent studies, what we did is we actually prescribed them 12 minutes a day. We didn't even say 30 right. minutes. And what we saw was that when we prescribed them 30, 12 minutes a day, they were more likely to do it. And people that yeah. did not every day, but about five, three to five days a week, we saw that they were benefiting. So that's what it was yeah. for. It's a very practical thing. It's like, okay, if you do this, it's like a good ballpark, almost like, um, you know, in the US, we've got these like couch to 5K trainings where you, you're sedentary. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, people, what's the yeah, amount yeah. you should do? It's not couch to uh, 1K. It's not couch to 0.5K. Right. Couch to 5K. There is a threshold you should try to aim for. And in that um, train up, you will benefit. So it's that version of it. Of course, you can go on to run a marathon. You know, you don't have to stick to 5K in your yeah. life. And that's yeah. the invitation is let's get you to this point where we start seeing protective effects and then sky's yeah. the limit, do what you'd like to do. Um, and so that is the encouragement is to really say, if you can incorporate this in, even in the busy periods of your life, to stick to that sort of 12 minute daily dozen 
um, minimum, it's a good chance that you're keeping your attention uh, protected and healthy. Yeah, terrific. Uh, well, I'm saying that because I'm aware that a lot of people watching this may not meditate yet or may have tried yeah. to start meditation practice and failed. So I'm, I'm hoping that joking aside is actually quite encouraging. Uh, I hope so. People, That's, like, even with just 12 minutes a day. Know, it's yeah. interesting yeah. to me to hear from so many long-term practitioners that it kind of hearing that kind of rekindled their even their, their long term yeah. like oh I can get back on and you know and then you realize oh maybe I don't want to stick to twelve maybe I want to start doing twenty or thirty minutes yeah. again so it's yeah, many, yeah. it's it's Absolutely. an invitation to say let's see if we can get to this twelve minutes to get get going again or for the first time yeah um, okay so one of one of the questions from one of my friends I feel a bit awkward asking it. Uh, uh, but it's um, I, I'm sure you must get asked it before. But I'm aware that a lot of your studies have been with people in the military, uh, you know, large scale studies, and of course, a lot of people, uh, or some people may ask, and certainly at least one or two people have asked me, well, what are the ethics in a way of helping soldiers be more mindful? Now, and it's a complex question because, you know, it's not clear that a, a Buddhist, certainly as a Buddhist speaking, I'm very glad we have an army, and you know, uh, to, to defend the uk you know so um, uh, uh, so um it's not straightforward sort of anti-military but still there clear, clear that's a question uh, is is what well, i guess the question is what what are your reflections on yeah i guess the ethics of yeah. of, of helping soldiers be more mindful when of course we know what soldiers you know are called on to do a lot of time which of course is to kill people so if, if we're helping them do that more effectively Anyway, you can see I'm struggling to even frame the question, but I'm sure you, you're familiar with it. So I'd just be absolutely, interested in your thoughts. It's a, you know, it's a consideration that I, I didn't walk into studying military service members by accident. I mean, it was all deliberate. Uh, you don't write multi-million dollar grants by accident and nobody's yeah, giving sure. you money yeah. uh, for no reason. So just to give you a little bit about my personal background, that actually did shape a lot of my motivation here. Um <clears throat> So, and it's interesting talking, you know, I spoke in the UK parliament about this work that we've been doing with the military. Very interesting because I was actually born in the town um, that was sort of Gandhi's headquarters. Um, you know, Gandhi's oh, ashram yeah. is in yeah. is in the city, well, not really town, but city that I was born in, Ahmedabad. And so this notion oh, of nonviolence, ahimsa, is like part of the cultural spiritual thread of my upbringing. And I didn't know anybody in the military when I started this work. Nobody. I didn't. I didn't have a family member, friends. It was not part of my 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 circles at all. But mm -hmm. I knew because you know, in my mind, and this has always been part of my consideration, ahimsa or nonviolence doesn't mean inaction. It doesn't mean do nothing. It really means take into consideration how you can behave in a way that would minimize violence in the world. And in many yeah. ways, I kept thinking, you know, if you want to minimize violence in the world, um, well, what's what are the sources of violence in the world? Uh, war was a big one. And um, do I live in a world where, where there is war? Yes. Do I live in, the, in a country where there is an army? Yes. Will I be single-handedly able to prevent the existence of armies and wars? No, I wish I could. I can't. So this is these, this, these are the preconditions. Like I live in a world where this is happening. I live in a country where this is, uh, this is the case. And so now if the, if the intention I still hold is how do you behave in a way that would minimize the existence of violence in our world, go to the sources that may be called upon or engaged oh, sure, in yeah. proliferating violence. And if they have better access to be more discerning in their decision-making, 
be less reactive in their emotional response and actually see each other as human beings that are connected. You know, all three of those practices that you were talking about, if we can offer that to people who happen to have a weapon that can destroy an entire city that we as a country have endorsed them holding in their hands, the chances of, uh, of senseless uh, and, and proliferation of violence will increase, or yeah. decrease, decrease. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. And that's the intention. The intention is if you have an 18 year old who's been given a weapon that could destroy an entire town, would you rather have that person have mindfulness skills or not? <laughs> that's the question. Well, when you, when you put it like that, yeah. And in my mind, it was, yes, we want to do that. We want to do it in the most efficient yeah. manner. And, and it's been very interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, um, what I've realized, and it really shows me how naive I was, is that it's members of the military themselves who want peace, who right. they are the front lines for violence. It's in their best interest to promote nonviolent mm-hmm. solutions. And so if you look yeah. at what's happening right now with uh, Ukraine, um, there are things that are happening in the world that the rest of the world says are unacceptable. And military uh, pressure and involvement will occur. If you have leaders and members who see the value of peace, de-escalation, nonviolence, mm. collaborative uh, solutions, you want mm. that. You want that as much as possible. And I do see what mm. we're doing and these efforts as seeding that within yeah very powerful institutions that without that input could really um, not advantage peace in the world. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of of really sort of, well, moving examples in your book, actually. There's one where there's a a, a platoon or whatever, a group of soldiers uh, with permission to to knock out this particular um, gathering of people who are assumed to be Taliban. Yeah, that's right. An encampment in, in, in Afghanistan. And it was only, I don't know if it was someone you trained or not, but it was only hit a particular soldier's um, uh, sort of questioning of, are they really Taliban and wanting to scout and go ahead and actually really question the story that everybody yeah. else was believing, that they were Taliban, and they realized they were just a Bedouin tribe, they weren't soldiers yeah. at all. I mean, this uh, soldier, really, by the way, to answer your question, this was not somebody that we had trained, but had intrinsic oh, okay, yeah. mindfulness, and it was seeing this kind of behavior in one of his soldiers that allowed the leader to then partner with us in the very first study ever done off U S army service members. So he saw what that capability intrinsic in someone's mind can do. And he wondered whether we could grow that capability by training. Uh, It was a very, very poignant example. But I mean, if you think about what that soldier actually did, just to give a little more uh, color to what you're saying is essentially there was a very strong story held by everybody that yeah. this is the nature of yeah. this group. They're a Taliban they're yeah. enemy. We've got to destroy them. Yeah. And what that soldier yeah. actually did is he saw what was, he opened his eyes to what was before him. Yeah. He noticed, yeah. you know, the cues that would tell you this is a, a, a warring a group of people versus not is that he noticed that there were no weapons in any of these people they were seeing. Yeah. And he was a, a scout at the front of the group coming up. It's like, there are no weapons. And he ended up just, Given that, thinking this is some, not what I think it is, I'm questioning my story now. And he just tackled one of the guys, and it ended up this. All these people came out of the the um, the tents there, and a very you know robust looking woman, kind of screaming and yelling, like "Let go of my you know, let go of my men!" Like, what do you? Yeah. That's when they discovered yeah. it was a tal- It was not a Taliban yeah, yeah. encampment. It was yeah. not. Yeah. But I just you know think about that. Think about all the different times when it, it could have easily gone another way. So many lives yeah, were sure. lost. 
this is what I mean by yeah. seeing if we can touch into the sources of the proliferation of violence yeah. to move it in a different direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, another question from my friends. Just moving on. Uh, I've probably got another five ten minutes, so I just wanted to ask a couple more questions, if I may. Um, Ian McGilchrist was one of our speakers uh, earlier in the project uh, Nature of Mind project, and um, uh, he, of course, is is I don't know if he's known to you, but he's famous for his work on on you know the the, the two hemispheres, the brain, and their and their different sort of the, the way the way the different ways that they um, work. <laughs> Sorry, my words are failing me, but anyway. Um, uh, I suppose what would be interesting is to know whether, to, to, to what extent your work crosses over with that kind of thinking. I mean, for example, we have the phrase in our vernacular, a picture tells a thousand words. And my very, very layman's understanding is like, for example, the right hemisphere is more likely to operate uh, on the basis of images, the left on the basis of, of, of words. Um, that may be wrong, but I'd, I'd be very interested to know to what extent there's a crossover there between your work on the attention systems of the mind and 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 this this idea of the two hemispheres working in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I would say you know, um, this is a very important topic to understand how the brain is organized and how how it happens. Um, just want to say that you know we don't want to confuse very uh, sophisticated research regarding hemispheric specialization of function to sort of the popular view that well, you're a right brain person or a left brain person. Yes, right brain, I know. You know <laughs> yes. Artsy and you, you know, yeah. you care about this and yeah. you're logical and this and that. Yeah. Those notions are, are false. Um, yeah. Yeah, you cannot sure. uh, attribute complex human personality profiles and actions to a single hemisphere. The brain is a highly interconnected dynamic organ. And we've got this giant bridge called the corpus callosum between two hemispheres. So there's constant back and forth. So I just want to say yeah. that, that, you know, what we're, yeah. what has been described as hemispheric specialization is not the same as popular lay notions of yeah. right brain, left brain, because those, those are false. Do not believe them. And when I say that in many crowds, they're like, what do you mean? I'm not right brain to left brain. What is <laughs> denying that you may have a particular way in which you engage in your life, but that's not attributable to one hemisphere doing soul work uh, on that behalf, right? So um, it's absolutely the case that in the context of attention, there are hemispheric specializations as well. Uh, and we know this from patients that have strokes, unilateral strokes. So if they have a stroke in the right, we see some things. And when they've stroke in the left, we see other things and we can start understanding how the brain is organized to be able to do certain things. Um, but I would say that's not my particular interest. I'm much more practically minded sure. where I'm yeah. trying to understand, you know, at this point, because we've been doing so much work kind of out in the field, working with people to bring mindfulness practices, uh, to see the impact of those practices in their real life, um, whether they are leaders of, of, uh, you know, industry or education or, uh, you know, members of various professions, um, even the brain basis at this point is, is sort of less central to my work than, um, yeah. than understanding just if there are benefits and how to benefit people yeah. most from this work. There are aspects of what my lab does that's, that's very interested in brain function, but it's really on the level of understanding the nature of how mental states proliferate. So it get, gets into a little bit of an esoteric sort of Buddhist terrain of, the contingent nature of reality. And, you know, if, if, if one moment mm -hmm. in time really sets the stage for the next moment in time, um, and what, what, what happens in moment, you know, 
n plus one is really determined by what just happened a moment ago. Um, how does it look like? How does that look in the brain? And what we realize is the brain too is sort of a contingent organ. And we do this using EEG, so we're not just looking at like um, you know larger time windows. We're looking at these thousands of seconds, something called microstates. And what we see is that microstates actually have this sort of contingent nature. Um, so I'm very interested in, in that aspect of it, but it has to do more with mind wandering and attention, uh, more so than its hemispheric nature. And what that, I mean, that's really piqued my interest, what you just said about the, this contingent reality of, of the brain. Um, I mean, what do, do you see a difference in the brains of people who are really, well, either very experienced meditators or even, I mean, I don't know how you would measure wisdom, but, you know, uh, people who, who, who would attain quite deep uh, wisdom or insight into the, into the contingent nature of reality, you could say. I mean, goodness knows how you would measure that, but are, is there anything that you can sort of see objectively through a, an ECG or a brain scan? Yeah, you know, I would say this is, I'm now commenting on the broader field of contemplative science. Yeah. And yes, we are learning a lot about this. What we know, for example, is that there is, it's not so much about this contingent state, that that has happened very okay. little, but just to say in broad strokes, yes, long-term practitioners um, have particular nodes in their brain that have increased what's called cortical thickness. You can almost think about it as like okay. certain muscle groups are stronger because they're working them out. That's the right. way of thinking about it. We know that interconnection between certain brain networks is better. The dynamics are smoother. And, you know, we talked about mind wandering. We know what the brain uh, network that really is involved in mind wandering with this internally directed attention and with long-term and even short-term practice, you can see that activation in that network, something called the default mode network, which is actually multiple yeah. sub-networks, it can get dialed down. So we see things are making sense. Like the thing that's part of the training is showing up in the way that the brain looks. Um, this question that I'm talking about really is not even about contemplative training, it's about just the nature of how the brain operates. So if you know that there's a particular microstate, I mean, a configuration of neurons that are showing you, ah, there's stability, almost a mind moment, if you will. And that mind yeah. moment by mind moment configuration um, has a temporal contingency. It's likely to be the same. And so if you're in state one in these microstates, you're likely to be in state one in the next right. moment. And the chances of you flipping to a different state are lower than you staying in the same state and flipping right, to certain right. specific states is even lower. So like to go from a very focused state to a completely open state, very, uh, right, yeah. so you might go from yeah, focused yeah, yeah. to a little less focused, but going from focused to totally unconstrained, very unlikely. So this is how I think it actually relates to some of, of some very interesting uh, Buddhist concepts of even what it means to have long-term practice in terms of your tethering to mental contingency. So, for example, if you think about what, um, you know, I'm now totally speculating, but if you think about what enlightenment is, you know, to be mm. truly free, mm. what does that look like in terms of a brain configuration? One hypothesis may be you, you, are, you don't need to have those contingencies. You can go from state highly mm. focused to totally not focused. Um, you can go to any dimension with ease and without that yeah. kind of compulsion to be tied into what's going on. Yeah. Now, you know, we don't know, but um, it would be interesting to see even how contemplative practice long-term or short-term impacts the contingencies between these microstates um, as a way to understand more fundamentally how practicing frees us in some sense. 
that sounds fascinating. And if you could, I don't know, get some very real adepts, I yeah. mean, of course, you can't get the Buddha himself in deal, but, you know, but, you know, some real adepts and see, I mean, are you yet in a position to be able to see those differences in, yeah. um, sorry, I can't remember the terminology, these contingencies. Microstates, these, yeah. Temporal contingencies. Microstates. Microstates. Yeah. Yes, we could. And yes, this, yeah. is a, this would be such an exciting project to do. Um, I'll wow, tell you the yeah. Department of Defense or the National Institutes of Health probably wouldn't fund it. So I need somebody that would want to, you know, put some funds into being able to explore this and, and then get the right kind of participants at various stages of their practice trajectory. Yeah. Are we seeing something along the lines of my hunch, which is that contingency is maybe less um, biased in this way um, yeah. in people that have more and more practiced? Because in some sense, we know the contingencies, you know, meaning you're in one state and you stay in that state. Uh, maybe tied to even your psychological health. So it's not yeah. like you want to dissolve yeah. temporal contingencies and you may have a completely disorganized yeah. brain, but they may be changing in predictable ways. That could be so interesting yeah. uh, to understand. And maybe- Right, so if there's any- yeah. I was going to say, if there's any really super wealthy Buddhists out there, if Elon Musk is secretly a Buddhist that, or whatever it is, then right, let's fund this study. This I think it'd be terrific. fascinating to- It's like yeah. those pet ideas of like, oh, if somebody ever asked me, you know, I just happen to have an extra million dollars. How do you want to spend it? This would be one of those things. Yeah. Do because Brilliant. It's only a million dollars. Come on. We can, we can do that. <laughs> Someone out there has got a smell. It's really the merging of Buddhist thought and psychology and contemporary neuroscience. And that coming together is to me such an exciting area. That, I mean, that is a, that is a, a very, a really wonderful note to finish. I'm just really delighted. Uh, to, to, to get to that point i mean i've enjoyed the whole, the whole discussion so i really want to thank you Amishi. i mean just very generous with your time and personally i found it fascinating i hope uh, those whoever's watching this is also has also found it really fascinating and um yeah i really highly recommend uh, dr jar's book <laughs> peak mind and and in fact even it's very practical as you said you're a very practical person because right at the back there's even like a week by week kind of uh, plan uh, of how to how to develop a, a meditation practice um so yeah thank you very much again i say really really appreciate your, your your time and um is there is there any last thing you want to leave us with like like the, the crucial thing i didn't ask you about or oh. like you know your your your, your yeah passing advice perhaps um, i would say just thank you this is this is really such a delight and i've really appreciated your oh. questions and your friends questions and not really a, a um, nothing you missed, but just to want to say that the, these conversations of people that are spending, you know, our, our day lives are probably spent in a lot of different headspace. And I don't know what you do, you know, day to day, but I'm assuming it's not what I do, which is in a lab studying, uh, you know. I'm a fundraiser, which is why I was. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> may it be so, may it be so, especially for this project. Um, but what I'm saying is the coming together of people that share this love for the nature of the mind, the nature of reality from different perspectives is such a valuable thing to do. And I just yeah. want to share my real gratitude and appreciation for you creating a platform where we can come together in this way oh. and have these conversations. So please keep going. Uh, and I'm really, really honored to be able to be part of this conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And um, uh, for anyone who's watching, you can carry on this conversation in a sense because there'll be a seminar where Mike Trubandu and I will discuss what Amishi and I have been have been exploring and there'll be a chance to ask questions as well. So do, do tune in for that. 
Thanks again, Amishi. And uh, yeah, w- w- wish you well with the rest of your day. Thank you. Take care.